calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot-button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Welcome to Bitches on Comics. I'm your host, Essie Fleenor. And I'm Sarah Century, and today we have a special guest, Danny Lohr. Welcome, Danny. Hey, guys. How are you guys doing? I'm Danny Lohr. I am an incredibly queer and brown writer from Harlem and the Bronx. I do comics and other stuff, short stories, working on novels, hopefully, fingers crossed, and some freelance comic editing. Yes, Amazing. You, you do many things. I, I do many things. I try to do many things. And usually I... All of those things really mean that I am talking complete nonsense and sharing Animal Crossing pictures on Twitter over at WereDogs, <laughs> W-E-R-E-D-A-W-G-Z, because I have a brand to maintain, and it's werewolves. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I also think that I would like to henceforth refer to myself as incredibly queer, uh, because that was like the incredibly queer and brown. I was like, Danny, what an amazing way to describe yourself. That is so beautiful. <laughs> I just want people to know what they're getting into when they start dealing with me. Because like sometimes people are like, oh, I was, you know, reading your stuff and I didn't expect X. And I'm like, look, there are three things you should always expect from me. And it's brownness, <laughs> queerness, and probably if I can fit them in werewolves. Like, so as long as I like put that on the table, no one can be surprised. Oh, what a great three oh things to have as your requirements. Um, that's beautiful. I'm obsessed. I used to be scared about it. Like, oh God. Like, I would like be on the phone with like uh, Vida Ayala and I would be like, I can't like make a career of that, right? Like if I try to be like the brown gay werewolf person, like people eventually <laughs> are going to get sick of it. And Vita would look at me and go like, I'll buy it. I'll fight them. I don't care. And so like I absorbed <laughs> that energy and here I am. Yeah, I guess one of the first questions that I have is, is Vita the most supportive person in comics? Because I feel like almost everybody has a story <laughs> about how supportive Vita has been. Oh my gosh. Vita is literally like the most supportive person not just in comics but like in general <laughs> yes i'm not going to share any of the stories because i'm only allowed to put vita on the spot if vita's there but like vita's that <laughs> sort of person that regularly tells stories of like going and helping somebody like 
randomly in public and being like, it was so wild to me. Everyone, no one else did it. And I'm like, I consider myself a fairly good person. Generally speaking on the alignment spectrum, you went (laughs) above and beyond. You did like the hero thing. And V is like, no, that's just like standard. And I'm like, no, (laughs) let me explain to you why that's not. And it's just like, V's literally the sort of person who they are so supportive and so amazing. It's inspirational, sort of, both in like comics and other things. I'm like, they're just the person that makes you want to like deserve their trust and faith, you know? Mm -hmm. Like I will literally go into talking to editors or like other co-creators that they've introduced me to. And so in general, when I'm pitching, I have this thing that it's like, obviously, I want people to pick up my book. I want to share it with the world. But I'm like, as long as I don't make a fool of myself with the editor so that like, (laughs) You know, even if they can't pick it up, you know, down the line, you know, they'll be like, yo, I really like Danny. We should see if they're available. But like V does that person, that non-editor that I have that feeling with. Like if V has, you know, hooked (laughs) me up with somebody to like collaborate or even just meet, I'm like, I want to make sure that like I don't shame Vita's name. (laughs) You know, like (laughs) I just want to be worthy of Vita having made that introduction because like Vita being like, oh, hey, this is my best friend. I'm like, cool. You don't understand that that's pressure. Now I got to live up to being your best friend. Now I got to be responsible for this water bottle. Like (laughs) the water bottle of friendship, I guess. (laughs) It's a great metaphor. Why not? You know, Sarah and I are obviously big fans of creative partnerships. We are creative partners and we feel like we really lucked out. Sarah probably has some astrological theories for our success. (laughs) And I tend to go, yes, you must be correct. And I also just think we have like a great personality match and you know maybe that's also astrology I don't know but I just want to hear about your partnership I guess I just want to hear like what makes you feel when you're working together that it's going to happen and whatever hard thing you're facing you can do it what is it about you and Vita working together that makes you so indomitable so I think Vita describes it best that when we first met we were destined to either be best friends or mortal enemies like there was no (laughs) there was no in between like so it's a little like over 10 and a half years now right like that I've known Vita So like hardcore. And I ended up working at Forbidden Planet, like literally, I think a month or two after Vita had gone off to college. Right. So Vita had been working there forever and everyone missed them. Right. I didn't know this at the time. I just rolled up in with a resume and didn't know at the time, but got the really unlikely fortunate thing where like one of the managers who's one of these close friends was like, looked at my resume, looked at me and then like one second, our boss is doing interviews and I somehow bullied him into uh, interviewing me. I have no clue how. (laughs) Now, after having known those people for a decade, I am sure that like she (laughs) went up to them and was like, go interview this person. And I'm entirely sure I got my job because at the time, you know, 10 years ago, I was a bit smaller, you know, et cetera. We both had very different hairstyles at the time. We both had like long hair that we didn't do anything with, but like put it back in like a curly braid. And so I looked enough like Vita that if people didn't know who I was from a distance, people would constantly go, "Uh, Vita, no. So I'm a thousand percent sure that I got that job because everyone just missed Vita. (laughs) So Vita's literally upstate, like at college, getting phone calls and text messages like, I thought you were at school, but I just saw you at Forbidden Planet. And... V's like ready, like, who is this faker? Who is this body snatcher? And I'm spending all my work day being accidentally called Vita by coworkers and customers alike. So at this point, I'm like, I will murder, you know, like, and then Vita comes in one day and literally first time we meet each other, I'm behind the register 
they look at me, I look at them, they point at me and they're like, you. And I point at them and I'm like, you. Like, no one's introduced us. And You're like that Spider-Man meme. You're like, you. Literally, that was us. And then Vita is literally like, it must be Vita because this could, a lot of our stories now have the problem of we don't know who said what. But I think that this is Vita simply because it's a Star Trek reference. And that's slightly more Vita's where they were like, so which one of us is the Mirrorverse one, like with the mustache? And I was like, I don't know. We have to figure out who looks better. And two weeks later, it's Christmas and I'm literally sleeping over at their house and their mother is coming to wake us up and is staring in confusion. And I have to point and go, your child is over there. So like (laughs) it was like this instant thing. Both my parents met Vita in the first time. They both just silently chuckled because suddenly they understood. Um, <laughs> it's this thing where just from the beginning, like, and I think that first time I slept over at Vita's house was literally the first in jokes that later became quarter killer years later happened. Like within that first month of us <laughs> Oh, meeting. wow. Just the first concept of that taking coins to do, you know, mercenary work and call their mama. Like, I swear to God, it was the first time I slept over at their house. And it was just that kind of instant connection where we both love really similar things, but importantly, not the exact same things. (laughs) Right. You know, like I'm a Star Wars, you know, they're a Star Trek. Like, so we both like the other thing, but like a little bit more and for different reasons. So it makes for this perfect partnership where like, Say we can do a script and our current kind of flow for it, uh, it's evolved over time, but like our current flow is we plan it really heavily together and then one of us kind of takes point on the first draft. But then if I'm like, I don't know what to do with this scene, I know what we have to do and we have two pages to do it. Then before we hand it in, we just pass it off to the other, sit in a Google chat and the other writes the scenes. Like that's just how we do everything at this point. And it's this kind of amazing thing where Because we love the same things, but for different reasons, the things that V loves doing in a script are the things that I struggle with and vice versa, you know? So it's almost always like, cool, I couldn't figure out how to do this scene. And I'm like, dope, because that's my favorite scene in the whole script. (laughs) You know, so much of our dialogue comes from us speaking it out loud and coming up with things back and forth on the phone. Oh, my God. I was going to say, too, that you both have very different styles. You know, if you read Queen of Bad Dreams... Versus like the wilds or something. Yeah. Then those are very different stories with very different tones. But then it's also, I would not be surprised if somebody was like, oh, yeah, the writers of these two are like best friends. So it's like (laughs) they have these themes kind of where I'm like, yeah, definitely. They're super queer, like super round, super questioning things that I think normally don't get questioned, you know, in comics. There's a lot of digging deeper behind these tropes. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's super interesting, but it's also, you know, whenever you write together, it's like, they're all very different worlds, you know? So I want to make sure that I'm clear that I think that your writing styles are super different, but then they merge in just such an incredible way. It's, it's super fascinating. Yeah. It's super fun because comics are comics. So sometimes there's like a stall for like a month or something, you know, like in a project and then I go back and I'm going to be like, I'm going to be real. I don't know which one of us wrote this page, but it's real funny. So now that I don't know which one of us has done it, I can say it's good. Um, It's really funny. It's actually something that also happens in real life. We are different, you know, like we're not going to have the same opinions about things, but the longer we're in a room together, we just start having the same mannerisms and like vocal quirks (laughs) we just start doing fusion which is why there's a picture at vita's wedding of us doing the fusion dance because we're those people 
Yes. Yes. We insisted. We were just doing because like, you know, like I was like the witness for them and we were like, well, we can't we can't have a big, important event and not have us do like the fusion dance stuff. But like that literally happens with us. And I think that happens on like a, a writing scale, too, that when we're working on a project together, our very different styles bring out the best in the other and we merge to be like cool <laughs> i'm so glad you brought up fusion because i'm obsessed with fusion and i think that it's such an incredible way to describe what happens when more than one person comes together to create something whether it be a relationship or a piece of art you know you become together different than you are individual and more than the sum of the parts i think the best versions of things do i don't think sarah and i would have a particularly good partnership if we were like oh we're just us pasted together it's like no we create a new sort of i don't know persona is not quite right theme isn't quite right tone isn't quite right because it's all of those things it's a new energy Ooh, i love it new energy perfect yeah yeah for me, I'm like, that's why you pick comics over something else, right? Like, I mean, I'm a person that is like, well, if you have a good editor in prose, you still have the same kind of thing because you still have that kind of two brains coming together, even though so much of it is a solo project. But like, that's mm -hmm. why we pick comics. Or at least for me, I'm like, if that's not why you're in comics, I, I don't get why you're in comics. You know, like, <laughs> I know some people are like, how do you co-write? That's so weird. And I'm like, dude, in comics you should already be doing that, right? You right, should already yeah. be co-writing co and co-creating with every part of the team, right? People think of it as the artist, but like also the letterer, the colorist, like all of that is like your energy coming together to like fuse into something greater. I've been really super fortunate. Everyone I've worked with has been great, right? But like one of the very forgotten sections of collaboration in comics is, for example, the letterer, right? Where like I've been super fortunate. Mm -hmm. and It's like, dude, those books would not be what they were if I was doing, first of all, I can't letter. So like, I'm never touching that. But like, <laughs> take Quarter Killer, for example, you know, like what Ryan brought to like this kind of hip hop feel for like the lettering. It's a very unique style, right? Mm -hmm. Or in Bond where Ariana like, so I'm terrible at writing sound effects. It's like my weakness because I come from prose. It's not something <laughs> that comes naturally to me. Right, right. Writing with Ariana on Bond, Ariana is probably one of the best at sound effects in the industry right now, like in my personal opinion, right? Like mm. just the way that she places and does things. Like I wrote scripts to give her opportunities, you know, like <laughs> to do what she does to create something better than whatever I could put on the page, you know? Yeah. I looked at sound effects differently because of my collaborator, because I knew that what they were creating in the project was so much bigger. And so for me, obviously, I have a particularly special relationship with Vita and a special closeness, but that's what co-writing is for me. You know, mm -hmm. it is just another branch of the collaboration that comics should always be. I mean, comics even isn't your first collaboration. Like, you were part of Faya Magazine, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, so I had been... I mean, honestly, before that, I was an internet nerd who did a lot of uh, online role playing. But also, while my wife doesn't write publicly, like we wrote together for years. So like oh. I grew up from age 11, 12, being that person that's like, I write with somebody. I see what they do. That's cool. And then I want to try to like match them in energy and talent. And so like I became a better writer for writing for her. Mm. She is probably my favorite writer that like no one has ever experienced on like a prose level. And I think I am a better writer for it in general. Again, I think like that that's where I learned dialogue because like dialogue was not her strong suit. Prose like description was. So I became a better dialogue writer for that. 
but with Faya, I was really fortunate. They published my first short story in like their third issue. Mm -hmm. And then in the following issue, I became part of the editorial team. And it's just this super great experience where we all have a very, very strong goal because like we want to get new and different black voices out. We want to show what our community does when like kind of given the spotlight and stage and that's that's the point you know like the point of Faya in its entirety is community like community is part of everything I do if it's being done right it's very important to me but I think the magazine and its point of giving all of these voices that aren't given chances in other magazines like that motivation is so community-based that Mm -hmm. it's a different level of collaboration you know like it is so much fun to get into that slush and be like yo these are people that was like there's no good reason why they're not other places even if we don't accept a story that magazine is very big on uh so a thing that happens with black writers in particular although i'm sure everyone has experienced this is this kind of fear of i don't know if my story is being rejected someplace because it's not up to par because the pool is just too big or because they don't understand black voices, right? Like this is a thing. This is actually pretty common. Marginalized writers getting the review of we just didn't get the voice or editors who are going like, this seems like, you know, a mistake or this is a weakness in the writing. And you're like, no, that's actually like a lived experience. Cool. That's fine. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I'm just going to like set Mm -hmm. myself on fire because you are literally (laughs) saying the thing that was like the purpose of my story isn't a reason to publish a story. Right. And so like we are very big on making sure that we always give critique so that like even if you're rejected, we want to set you up for the next story that you do, you know. Oh, yeah. Be it that, oh, it's, you know, like a technical structural issue. You just need to work on your sentence construction or it's really good. But like this was an issue, you know, or it just didn't suit the theme enough. You know, like we try to do that because the whole point Mm -hmm. is making the community stronger. And I think that kind of background prepares you for comics in a real way. You know, it allows me to come into pretty much any level of comics, be it on a singular project or just with other creators and being like, unless somebody makes it a thing, I don't think I've ever considered myself competing with any other creator, even if we were pitching for the same project. Mm-hmm. Like, it just doesn't occur to me uh, in a real way. And I think that Faya has something to do with that, with my real feeling that, like, there's never going to be just one spot. I don't get that spot. That's fine. Mm. I accept it gracefully, move on to another project. And one, there's going to be another project. And two, In five years, I don't know what projects are going to be available. Competition is too stressful for me to get involved in. (laughs) I feel pretty strongly the same way. Um, If I wanted to get into competition, there's sports. Like there's like (laughs) all kinds of other things that you could get into that are competition based that I had no interest in based on how little competitive energy I have. Because, yeah, what's the point of anything if you're not doing it to help other people in some way or like at least push people forward? With Faya, it always comes across like that. As a reader, I would like to know, because I have had a subscription. Thank um, you. I think I back issue bought the first few, and then now I have all of the follow-up issues. And yeah, it's it's been so good. It's a great, great anthology. It's very inspiring, I think, for a lot of the stuff that SE and I have been doing as far as like Decoded goes. I think that Faya is like the anthology, kind of. Yeah, absolutely. That's what I was going to say, is like, we look to Faya as an example of, of how to build community through 
prose fiction. That's what we wanted to do with Decoded, uh, which is still on sale now, decodedpride.com. But always got to be doing that sale. I like like your advertisement voice. It was real good. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. But really for us, it's about like exactly what you said. Sarah and I are both queer writers. We get rejected because people think what we're writing is too weird because it's too queer. And it's like, Uh, that's the goddamn point. So, you know, we hear that it's very different. Absolutely. But we're super excited that in this publication, we've been able to elevate so many voices by black and brown authors who are queer, who are writing things that we wouldn't write, obviously, for a million reasons. It's incredible to be building community through accepting, but also like you were saying, through rejecting people. We really, in our letters, tried to be really clear, like, here's what we think you could do. Eh, some of it is like, nothing. You couldn't do a damn thing. We just didn't have any more money. You know? And yeah. some of them are like, hey, come back next year. Give it another try, you know, like, but don't give up. And so I don't know. I just found that really inspiring and relatable. Our commitment to commentary and rejection letters, I want to make clear, it's not like a slight or a diss to larger magazines. You know, like I've also worked on other magazines. Uh, I'm actually, I'm guest editing on, I think, January's issue of Fireside Fiction. And like larger magazines, they get hundreds is like underselling sometimes some of the big magazines (laughs) and how many submissions they get during an open period. Like there are many mm, yeah. magazines that get a thousand or more, more like submissions during their couple of weeks open, you know, like yeah, we realized that very quickly. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it's just like, yo, I realized that it's very difficult to impossible to really for some of the larger magazines to take on that kind of personalized rejection stuff. Right. To be able to like kind of function. And so I want to say that that is not a slight to like the rest of the industry because I get it, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, for sure. <laughs> I get it. The first time I ever opened slush for like one of the magazines that was established longer than us. And I stared at it and I was like, okay, I know that the answer is start from the top and work your way down. But like, it still feels like there's so much to get. But you know, like there's also the issue that up until recently, how many of these magazines didn't have a single reader that would really understand what a trans story was trying to do or what a a black story was trying to do. And a lot of the magazines are taking the steps to change that and making sure that they have readers that can understand those stories, having, you know, the stuff in place to go, hey, I realize that I'm not the audience for the story. So can someone else double read this? You know, Mm. that kind of thing is happening. But, you know, it's like kind of whatever little thing we can do is, you know, awesome. Definitely. And so submit to all of these things. We like them. (laughs) Absolutely. That's exactly what we've been saying to folks. It's like, get your work out there. Let someone look at it. And, you know, if you want to be edited by queer people, Sarah and I are right here. We are great, soft, nice people. You can listen to our podcast and know what jackasses we are. And you know what? We're going to be nice. We love your writing. And, you know, the the risk is pretty low. (laughs) That's what we tell people, at least. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Also, like, don't think it's too late. Like, so in June, I'm turning 34. I say this with a question mark because I don't keep track of how old I am. (laughs) I only know my birthday in relation to everyone else in my life. But like when I did, uh, was it Last Exorcist in Faya, right? That was about four years ago. That was my first published by anyone who wasn't a Free Friends magazine piece ever. And up until like about a month before that, I had not ever really tried to submit places. I'd been writing for years. And I think it was only a couple of months after that that I started 
to really pitch comics. I had not written an actual comic script until that year, I think. And things just kind of started happening, you know, like in a real way. But they only started happening because I started having this thing that's like, cool, if I get a rejection, I have to write a list of the next three places I'm going to try to submit this thing. It's as much a talent game as it is a numbers game. And Mm -hmm. it's really hard when you're like a marginalized creator because like rejection is already super hard. And when you're writing, be it prose or comics, you may get dozens and dozens, if not sometimes literally hundreds of rejections on a project. But that actually has nothing to do with the quality of the project. You can get rejected a million times and then one person likes that project because it's like it's a numbers game and it's a resume game, right? You Mm -hmm. can get the same project rejected for years and then you get one thing on your resume, like just one published thing. Mm -hmm. And suddenly those editors can go, well, now I can convince the people with the paychecks, you know, like (laughs) I can't count how many doors opened just because I had Last Exorcist available. In that year, I was getting a lot of rejections because people don't know who I am. And like they've got 20 people pitching who everyone does know or sort of knows and they they have proof of the work that they can do right and then i get one thing out and suddenly these people who i are like cool now i can work with this you know totally totally publishing is super weird in which you can have years and years of people who really believe in your work but it's difficult for them to convince the people above them right Mm -hmm. yeah And so that's why I'm always like, even if you're scared to submit that thousand word short story, if someone says yes, eventually that's a step closer to doing another project, you know? Oh, totally. Yeah. Hell, learning to know how many of the rejections in publishing aren't personal isn't a step towards another project. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, my God. I think that every single time I have talked to somebody about you know what advice do you have and stuff like that it's basically always just like just get prepared to send a ton of emails and to not hear back and to have people reject you obviously like you're not gonna get even now I'm like I've been doing this for a long time and I still get articles turned down all of the time that will never stop if you're gonna be a creator you're gonna be dealing with lifelong rejection Um, and right. it's not necessarily personal. Sometimes it's from friends and like, that's the hard thing. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh God. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes it's literally like I've had really good friends who have had to tell me no. Some of the people I love the most in the industry, like some of my good artist friends who I have pitched stuff to and being in the Queen and James Bond section of my career is like very strange because it's this, this thing where people sort of know who I am. But a lot of my friends are just one or two steps higher on the rung in their career. You know, I'm super proud of them. This is not like a disparaging comment, but that also means that sometimes they have to say no to me, even if they like the project. And it could be because they've got these other offers on the table that are giant, or it's because we can get someone interested, but they've also got to just pay bills, you know, like, or Mm -hmm. their artists transitioning to writing their own books. I've made a rule that if I think that I would be angry at someone for saying no to working on a project with me, I'm not allowed to ask them. Ooh, I love that. (laughs) Good rule. Because I think at that point, then I don't appreciate their friendship as much as I think I do. Oh, yeah. Like I can be hurt, you know, for a day like, man, I really wish that was going to work out. But if I think that I would be angry or genuinely upset or it would change our dynamic at all, I'm not allowed to ask them. Mm. Mm -hmm. Because then... Do I see them as like a friend and a collaborator or do that? I see them as like a tool on a resume. Right. 
And so like literally like I will have friends be like, I'm sorry, you know, I can't work on this or, you know, it's not that uh, I've done too much of the genre. And I'm like, cool, golden, maybe later or maybe never. It's fine. I still get to see their stuff eventually at some point, you know, like, <laughs> right, and maybe yeah. at some point I will be at a different point in my career and they've got, a, you know, an empty few months and they're like, hey, do you still have a story on? There's so many ways to think about the future, both as friends and as a professional. And like, there's so many things to get angry about in the industry. That's not one of the ones that I'm going to do it with. I refuse. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think that that's completely valid just based on the fact that, I mean, if projects don't work out all of the time, I think that some people hit this wall whenever one of their projects doesn't go through and it's just, you know, now I will never be accepted or something. And it's just like, no, you just have to go to the next project. Like that's, that's always what I've had to do. I've had tons of creative failures. Good God. (laughs) Like I think everybody does. And that's not to say that I haven't had moments where I have started bawling being like, I'm never going to be able to move forward. You know, like even on like a couple of projects that I think have done really successfully, I've had a moment where I've had a complete meltdown on them. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I'm laughing because I have a a meltdown on every project. (laughs) (laughs) There's like, it's just part of my process. I'm like, oh, I must be close to the end. I'm having a breakdown. (laughs) Oh, boy, did I have during Queen? There's actually uh, you might have seen I tweeted about it a little bit, but I had this like bizarre realization halfway through queen that changed the entire second half but it was my first time finishing a comic right and so like i had stalled and panicked for a while on it and that was entirely on me and very much panicked a bit and i knew that some of that ended up coming because like i knew what the real ending of queen should be but i do that i've had phone calls with editors where i'm like yeah no totally i understand no problem i get off the phone and i cry for half an hour and then i'm like (laughs) cool, I'm going to put on some kitchen nightmares or yell at some ancient alien dudes and I will feel better (laughs) and then work on the next project. Yes, (laughs) I just have to remember that it's not personal. Uh, And if it is personal, would I want to work with someone who made it personal? Hell yeah. Hell yeah. (laughs) Bitches on Comics is the love of my life. I love this podcast so much. I will be still doing this podcast when I am dead. I'll be doing it on a different frequency. It will be kind of weird. But, you know, you'll also be dead probably. So you can join me there. Oh, or you'll have a Ouija board. Oh, yeah. Ouija board. You can tune in that way. That one won't need to be funded because I won't be eating or living indoors. But this one, this one, I live indoors and I eat. Do you live indoors and eat? Oh, God. Yeah. You just reminded me. (laughs) Yeah. Ooh, turns out these walls aren't free. And so we really want to keep making this podcast for forever. The way that we're going to be able to continue doing that is to have your support. There are a lot of ways you can support us. You can follow us on Instagram or Twitter at at bitchesoncomics. You can rate and review us. But the strongest, most helpful thing you can do is become a patron. We have patrons at all levels. So you can join us at $2. You can join us at $20. You can join us at a million dollars. If you can join us at a million dollars, we're going to donate all of that money to help other people. But we appreciate that you're, you know, redistributing some of your wealth. So you know what? Find us. We're at patreon.com slash bitches on comics. Not only can you support us, but when you do become a patron at any of those levels, you get cool perks. You get reviews of more comics. You get lists of more comics. You get playlists to go with comics. We're talking comics, pop culture, books, movies. We're doing it all. If 
Somebody donates a million dollars, I want to keep 5,000. Okay, Sarah, you can keep 5,000. I need a car. That makes sense. Okay, thank you, everybody. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Let's talk about Queen of Bad Dreams a yes! little bit. <laughs> yes, that comic is great. Thank you. <laughs> Holy shit. Holy shit. I'm obsessed with it. Yeah, I just kind of want to know what your process behind creating the book is, because you were just now saying that it was the first one that you completed. And I just think that, I mean, it's such an interesting comic that I assume that the story behind it must be interesting as well. Uh, so it was a really wild experience on a lot of levels. I find in general that I'm really grateful for kind of the pacing of my career because I know that in a lot of ways I've gotten a lot of opportunities that especially in comics, which is a industry that needs a community to work. It needs co-collaborators, but is also because it's freelance, very solitary. And so I, I know that, you know, when I talk about I've had a weird three, four years of a career like Queen was part of that. Queen actually started as a uh, short story concept, partially inspired by some of the work that was being done in prose. Was it Cassandra Kaw, uh, Hammers and Bones stuff? There was another novella called Dream Quest of Velvet Bow, which is a reversal of the Dream Quest of Kadash. I'm blanking on the original H.P. Uh, Lovecraft story, but it's that story, uh, the Dream Quest of Velvet Bow, which is, if you haven't read it, is about like a 50-year-old uh, woman who teaches at an academy in the dream world, which is odd already because like in the original story, the only people from the waking world that go into the dream world are men. Lovecraft's, you know, very subtle commentary <laughs> on whether women have dreams and motivations. Oh my uh, God. But so one of her students, who is the daughter of someone very important, runs off with one of the dream guys. You know, this very situation where you're instantly like, I sense the fuck boy. Right. <laughs> the story never says that. That's that's my particular flavor on it. But sure, yeah. uh, so the entire <laughs> book is actually a walking quest, almost the reverse of the original story where she walks from the university 
and eventually gets to the waking world. And it was very inspired by that. The original short story I was going to tell involved a version of Dahir who was checking in on a classic manic pixie dream girl sort of type who was now working like as a barista and her job was just very quietly to kind of establish whether or not she was allowed to stay. Mm -hmm. I think the only thing aside from, you know, brown lady lead that really still exists from the story is the first three pages that scribble monster fight is very much pulled from, I think, like the first couple of paragraphs of the original short story. Although obviously Dervla and uh, Jordy kind of like made it something absolutely amazing. Yeah, it's it's such a good sequence. Oh my gosh, Dervla at one point was like, yeah, the way that I colored in the scribble monster was that I used my left hand so it looked like a kid drew it. And I was like, I love you. Oh my God. <laughs> You're a genius. Yeah, that's a genius. That is so brilliant. It's so good. And so what kind of happened is that I got the opportunity to pitch and I keep a notebook of like short. I just didn't have a comic pitch ready, but I had a list of short stories that I wanted to work on. And so I pulled that one and two others and was like, so which of these do you like? And then I had met Adrian from Vault because he introduced me to the crew for the Good Fight anthology that I edited. Uh, and so we had already taken a lot of time talking about story voice and editing style. And he was kind of a mentor for me for that situation because that was still is my largest editing project thus far. So we had a lot in common and uh, I took a chance because uh, I was tweeting about how I was working on putting together this pitch, right? Which ended up not happening someplace else, which is fine because the story that it became, I like a lot more. And going, oh, uh, you know, writing some tweets about how I was working on something and I wanted to pitch it. And he liked one of the tweets. And then I was like, Yo, V, this editor liked this tweet. Do I do it? And V was like, yeah, just fucking do it. <laughs> and so like, I emailed him and I was like, look, I'm taking a chance. I know you don't have open submissions on your site, but you liked my tweet. Can I pitch to you? And he was like, yeah, do it. Uh, <laughs> it's literally a series of events that like one doesn't happen. And if I didn't have the particular relationship from the good fight with Adrian before this, is literally what I would tell someone not to do because usually this would be like really super presumptuous. <laughs> you know, just emailing and being like, yo, I know you're not open for submissions, but in this case, because of the conversations we had during the good fight, and even though I edited the whole book, he edited my short in it uh, so that I wasn't editing my own work. So we had already discussed some stuff. So I took that chance and he was very, very into it. And it kind of went from there. I had like a draft of the first issue when I came to him and we, we went from there. And the first two issues were kind of like mostly set storyline wise. I think he brought a lot to it in terms of voice and stuff. For example, originally it was fully narrated by Dahir, actually. And he got me thinking about alternate styles. And then I immediately was like, well, then Viv has to tell it. That was one of my favorite parts was that it wasn't from Dahir's perspective, but from, from Viv's. So I'm so glad you're talking about it. Yeah, uh, I think that it was originally in her perspective because that's like the classic noir thing. Like, that's what you do. Mm -hmm. But then we were talking about alternate. This is a non-standard world I'm building, so do things in a non-standard way. And the second that Adrian suggested that, I was like, it has to be Viv, right? This person who loves and cares for our protagonist, but can be honest because they have not been together for a very long time, but then can also be wrong in the way they tell the story. But then it's like, why is Viv telling the story? And then it immediately became, 
her telling the story to their daughter. Oh, I just got chills. (laughs) (laughs) You know, because like it was so obvious once I started doing it because I have this thing in my writing and I'm sure that this comes from the fact that back when we were much, much younger, me and my wife were like split up for three years and we got back together. I really like telling stories about exes rather than first hookups. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One, I like having already established history with characters. I think it's something that you can do with just a little bit of effort rather than having to develop the chemistry as like fresh, whether or not they get back together. I really like that dynamic. But then also I knew that my other lead, that Ava was going to be like this classic manic pixie girl, right? I knew that that character in the classic noir story always ends up with the protagonist. Mm -hmm. And I felt that 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 railed against the point of the story. If she ends up with Dahir, then I'm just grabbing her from one forced coupling to like the standard coupling, right? Even if it's queer. Mm -hmm. I thought that it was more interesting for Ava to end the story essentially with no decisions being made and that being okay. She doesn't end up with the protagonist. She doesn't end up with anybody. She doesn't know if she wants to, you know? She doesn't know what she wants to do in the next step and that's her point. Getting the freedom to not know. Well, it's so important for a figment, right? Oh, no, like, you're absolutely right. Like, this sort of agency thing. And I think that's the theme that was so powerful in everything of yours that I've read, that agency, individual power, the ability to choose freedom, those are the things that define us as people. At least this is me interpreting your theme, so tell me where I'm wrong. Well, no, like, it's really funny. I kind of deal with, and, like, it's pretty obvious in Queen, I deal with both of these pretty heavily, that, like, personal agency is incredibly important and retaining it. But at the same time, the fact that you cannot retain personal agency without a community and that kind of like what always happens with my stories, you know, like not a group of people that you're forced to be with, but a community that can support you being an individual, the, the kind of no great individual was made alone. So if Ava runs alone, no matter how powerful she is, she's going to just get hunted down and taken. Right. But with support, she can protect herself. She can be protected. She can make whatever decisions she wants or doesn't want to make. And so, like, that's a big part of my stories, I think. Totally. And you see it with all the different combinations of characters, right? Like, Dayher can't beat the big bad if she doesn't have her daughter Celine with her, right? Like, Celine is a part of that process, even if she doesn't like it, you know? So there's this interconnectivity of everybody. True fact, that's the big change that happened. Oh! Uh, the original version of my synopsis for this is that Dahir went in alone. And then I wrote the third issue. And I knew that after I wrote the third issue that the reason why I was stalling on my ending was because I had done this very classic singular chosen one hero. Mm. And that railed against everything. Because like the third issue for me is really like my thesis to the whole thing. Like Celine has the speech about what the story's about uh, in the last issue. But like three is what the story's about. You know, when Dahir gets the punch, another thing I knew that immediately that was going to happen was that he was getting punched <laughs> in the middle of this story. And that's how I was going to get my classic turn in your badge <laughs> and gun. <laughs> and it's so satisfying. Ugh. That scene also changed quite a bit with a combination of Adrian's help pushing me to make it a more original scene. And also I wrote the edits on that scene the day the, um, the big college pay scandal broke. (laughs) So I was struggling because like, yeah, the original version of that scene was really bland. And then that scandal broke. And then it was great because we had been on an editorial meeting that like signal got cut off. So we were like, okay, we'll talk the next day. 
And we thought it was going to be another hour of like hashing out how this was going to work. But then that scandal broke. And I've talked about this other places, but I was like a scholarship kid in private high school. And so that moment really brought me back to some of those feelings and some of the things I would hear from the parents and from the other students. And so the call the next day was 15 minutes because I had just solved the problem because I was like, (laughs) it's going to be about this college smugness, this do you belong, do you not belong sort of thing. Mirrored with Ava and Celine's story about how Celine has been able to grow up, that she has no skipped time to accommodate her dreamer, that she was able to live every moment and that every moment means that she has had to make a choice every second of every day, you know, whatever that choice may be. And I realized I wrote that issue and it was bullshit if Dahir saves the day. Mm. It means nothing if she goes in on her own and saves the day. And I realized that as I wrote issue three and that's why Celine follows her. That's why mm. the fight in the apartment happens the way that it does, where she mirrors her mother so much. Because I was like, she is so much part of her mother, but because that's her mother, not because she's a dream. <laughs> because she has been, mm. you know, taught what is good and what it is to be a good person. And then there's no way that she doesn't go to help Ava. Mm. You know, like there's, there's no way that this woman's daughter, that Viv's daughter also, does not jump in and help them. Right. And so that was the big change for the story. And it's it's interesting because I know that there are some people who like and I get it, you know, like to kind of have like this family saving moment. (laughs) Like I get that for some people that it was confusing and I'm okay with that because I'm like, if it's confusing, that means you thought about it. You thought about (laughs) why it had to be like this. (laughs) Yeah. But I was immediately like, I can't have her come in and save the day. One, because that also takes Ava's agency away, you know. Even if you still have that moment where Ava, you know, busts out and fights, it's still about Dahir in that moment. I was like, I don't want that. And that's kind of uh, how that formed. I love it. I uh, I just love the whole thing. You know, something we talked with Gabby Rivera about in her America run is I saw it echoed in this where we have a queer birth that is not explained in some sort of like, here's this thing. And then the, that thing. And then the, here's how the thing and the thing like queer parents just get to have a baby. And like, that is such a revolutionary concept because so often what we see in queer pregnancies or in queer children's stories, is exactly what I was talking about, the bureaucracy, all those things that are real and I'm not here to hate, but it's so refreshing to see in queen of bad dreams that this queer couple who just want to have a baby get to, and they get to be great parents, even with all their flaws. And I just, I thought that was so freaking cool. It was really important to me for them. You have this, this main character whose life is her career, right? But like her dream is just to have this family and have this child that is uh, just so perfectly of her and Viv. But at the same time, that, that didn't mean that it was easy for them. That like she still struggled with this is her dream, but that doesn't mean she doesn't have one other dreams and other focuses and other moral obligations Mm, mm -hmm. that her story is nowhere near ended when she gets her perfect dream, you know, Mm. because like there's still a rest of the world out there. But I wanted them to just have this this perfect beauty, wonderful moment and to allow them to continuously have that moment. And also then. Celine's not a perfect child. (laughs) When you contrast with Eleanor and Emerson, right, that what she wants is a Stepford child, right? She wants this child that does exactly what she wants, that is perfect, that says the right thing, that does the right thing. And Dahir just wants a child (laughs) to watch grow up 
get in trouble with her coaches, you know, like not know whether she wants to do sports or theater or whatever, you know, like the dream is a child. The perfection is that she exists. <sighs> I got chills again. <laughs> in case you can't tell, I love Celine so much. My, in fact, my favorite cover for the whole thing was when like Jordy did that cover with her with the baseball bat and I died. <laughs> it's so beautiful. I was like, this cover is my favorite. Okay, well, now we got to talk about Quarter Killer, right? Because, oh my God. Yes. Talking about beautiful, badass characters, community resilience, like twisting the chosen one narrative. I mean, it's there again, and it's completely different at the same time. I would love to hear where Quarter Killer, I mean, you said you and Vita started talking about Quarter Killer when you first met. Like, oh my God, just take me through it. Yeah, so V and I ended up working at Forbidden Planet together for years. And both when I would stay over at V's, because V was very close to the job and I was very far. And when we were at work, we would just riff ideas. Like that was just a thing we would do. Pretty common, like we were working at the same time as like Matt Rosenberg and a few others. And like all of us would just be there like, cool, quick. You have until you round the floor, come back and tell me what you would do with X characters. Like that was just a thing we did for fun. So we were constantly coming up with ideas and Quarter Killer literally just came with like four million like different ideas coming together. Like Becky 3000 actually came from an idea where this is the dorkiest thing you've ever heard, where um, we were selling the Hand of the King pendants from Game of Thrones. And the funniest <laughs> thing in the world to us, because also Daredevil existed, was Hand of the Kingpin. So like the original description of the character was the Hand of the Kingpin. And so we went from there to like then creating her boss and creating her and like that stuff kind of like forming from there. And then we had QK and then we were like, well, QK is married to Henry Rollins, we've decided. But what if Henry Rollins had a twin brother and it was Chris Tucker? And <laughs> this is literally the base concepts for everyone. And then like we were like, well, we love Lone Wolf and Cub, so we need a child. We need a cub. <laughs> and that's literally just like these these very random ideas. And then being like, let's let's do it, though, like for real. And then V was pitching to Comixology. We'd had like some of the ideas in various forms that we had pitched elsewhere and it just wasn't right for various places. We actually met V when we started actually forming a full idea, had met Jamie Jones at a convention and they hit it off and had shown him some of our ideas. And he you can actually see them in the back of the trade, his original sketches for a couple of the main characters. But, you know, like it didn't just find purchase anywhere for a while. And then V was like, yo, I'm going to pitch to Comixology. I've got a couple of ideas, but should I just throw Quarter Killer in? And I was like, yeah. And then we were at New York Comic Con. I remember this because V is like, yo, I got this meeting with Chip. Come with me. So like we're like shoveling food because I don't think we've eaten all day because we are terrible at taking care of ourselves at conventions. So we're like shoveling food. <laughs> we're walking and I'm just going because like one of the three ideas involves me. That's fine. Probably not going to do that. And but like we're thinking like, cool, this is how we're going to defend the idea. This is if there's any questions. And then Chip Deadass just goes, V, which is the one you most want to do? And V is like, order killer. And he's like, all right, let's do it. And then suddenly, after all of these no's for this book for years, <laughs> he was just like, do the one that you are most into. And then suddenly, like, it was rolling. And, like, we got, you know, Jamie on board. And we knew Ryan, but, like, Jamie was like, I want to color my own stuff, but, like, I want to work with Ryan. So we're like, cool, let's see if Ryan's free. And it just, it came together and we were like, we want this to feel like a cyberpunk mixtape. 
You know, mm. like every issue at the beginning of the script, one of us, because that one we were still mostly going back and forth. Like I took one issue, V took another, uh, and then the other would do the edits on that issue. We go, cool, this entire issue is inspired by this old school video game. The casino issue was dead ass. I was like, it's just inspired by Sonic Spinball. That was, that was our concept going into that. When we did the video game console one, that one was straight up me doing the old TNT side scroller. And it was very much us having fun with that. And what's really cool is that Jamie is a trained stage combat person. So what we would do, and Comixology, because it's digital and because of the way that worked, we had a lot more freedom with the number of pages in every issue than uh, you normally would. So we would, you know, loosely, you know, script combat, but literally we would just go, Jamie, do what you want. Literally chuck this all out and in lettering, we'll go back. And Jamie would be like, hey, are you okay with me adding two pages to this combat scene? And we're like, literally the only person who suffers is you. So yeah. Like, like, we're not going to say no. We don't have to do any additional work and you're just going to make it cooler. So, you know, there was a lot of that. And then like, uh, I think we had tried a slightly more traditional lettering style at the beginning. And then we were talking to Ryan and we were all like, uh, what if we made it more like graffiti? What if we made it more hip hop flow? And then immediately Ryan just turns over a completely different lettering pass. And it's perfect. There was no in between between more classical lettering and what Ryan ended up doing. He was just like, "Okay, I understand and just made this this beautiful work. Well, the whole thing just drips with like enthusiasm and fun and like nerd like just so nerdy and it's so fun to read it has such momentum and it's only been out for a couple months right so yeah it feels like wow what an incredible gift like to have i would you know one of the things i was going to bring up is the lettering so i'm so glad you told us about that because it's so distinct the art is really distinct the story is super distinct and you have all these eclectic elements and it's like Wow, I didn't know like a hip hop video game community, uh, resistance, lone wolf and cub, you know, so on and so forth could come together so perfectly. But my goodness, it is incredible. And it's really one of those books that comping it is hard, right? Mm -hmm. Like we settled on like a cyberpunk Robin Hood with like hip hop and video games. But that's (laughs) because we were literally sitting there like in this really joyful way where we're like everyone on the team is like, I don't know if I've ever worked on a project that looks like this that feels like this, you know, like in a really fun way. There was at least a couple of times when we would do those like fun day of release, like mini soundtracks where a couple of us would pick the same song, having not talked to each other. And then we would have to go back and redo where there was like this just immediate gelling in this really cool way where I'm proud to say, I don't know, you know, you, you hit the nail on the head. It shouldn't work. And it does because we were just like, we love this and we're going to do it. And then there's also going to be the story about technology and corporations, but it's not going to be anti-technology. You know, like it's it's going to be telling a story about a video game console that gets people addicted to it while also having protagonists that live and love in an arcade. <laughs> you know, like mm-hmm. it's a bunch of weird mismatched things that I think work because they're mishmashed. A real thing that kind of helped me whenever I was sitting like, can we do this? Is this allowed? is uh, going to some of my books recently, my favorite books, and then just word for word describing the basic plot because they're all batshit, right? Like if you like (laughs) sci-fi and fantasy books, especially recent contemporary stuff that people are doing, you just say what the summary is and you're like, the fuck did you just say to me? 
Like, you know, like that's a thing and it works. And I'm like, yeah, it absolutely does. And uh, it's ridiculous. You know, like that sort of stuff. People are doing that and it works because they love it. And the story itself is the argument that it does work. Exactly. And it's super fun. And I mean, Jamie gave us High Top's hair, which even if the rest of the book was awful, I have High Top's hair now forever that canonically the (laughs) lights turn on and off. So... Mm -hmm. And I love how much High Top loves High Top's hair. And it's like, I hate pretending that I don't have this badass hair. I think the thing that comes through so clear is everyone's so damn enthusiastic. Everyone who's creating it, everyone who's in the story, like everybody has a heart of just gold. And the villains don't, but like they shouldn't. It's just like so good. The first time Quarter Killer is shown in like a, a single panel, I was just like, I... I love them. They're my hero. I want to be like them. It was just so beautiful. Their style. Oh my God. I love their clothes. Like it's all so I need you to know that that outfit is all Jamie. I love it. We had concept ideas, but then Jamie shot us back a page where he has a house robe and no shirt on that he designed that for QK. And I was like, they look perfect. (laughs) The cat parent mug. That is all Jamie. The door art that produces images like he never tells us what he's going to do in that art. So there, there's an issue in which Jamie's face is on it. And I fucking lost it. I saw that. And I was like, who was that? Who was it's in that Jamie. art? And it was Jamie. <laughs> um, most of the little in jokes in the first issue, that first big fight where it's like the kill the wizard and and all of that. I think the only joke we may have had anything to do with as writers was like the Mortal Kombat reference that's in there. But like the duck hunt and all of that was all Jamie. Like... <laughs> So much of the style, High Top's beautiful skirt in the casino. Hysterically, I think the only time I said anything about clothing design was when uh, specifically High Top has to wear the suit and I'm responsible for turning off his hair. I did that terrible thing. (laughs) But like all the wonderful clothing design and stuff, that is Jamie. Mm. And it just kept getting better. (laughs) I just want to dress like jazz all the time, but I don't wear short shorts. (laughs) But I, I want to. Dax is so good. So good. They're all so good. It's really just a truly delightful read with like a great heart. What I like about your work is it's so fun and it's so on message at the same time. And that's a really nice pairing to be able to be like, I'm going to relax and enjoy this work. And I'm going to like know that the philosophy is sound and it's not some weird like, oh, this person will save us all or whatever message that sometimes happens in any kind of media. Really? I love it. Sarah, I know that you had some thoughts on James Bond. Ooh, let's talk Bond. I love talking Bond. Yeah, I guess I'm curious about what your introduction to the franchise was, just even as a fan, because it's like, this is such an epic, long running, you know, movie franchise and comic franchise. And, you know, I'm sure that there must be a radio show in there somewhere. I just am curious how you got into it and then how that led to you falling into this job. So Bond is the kind of thing where like a lot of my non-superhero long-term interests like Trek and things that there's not like a single moment I remember because I grew up with it. My dad was very much the chill, quiet nerd, like no merchandise or anything except a couple of times I got him an Iron Man cup or mug. But like Mm -hmm. I was a Buffy fan. He was an Angel fan. If you accidentally talked about Angel or Star Trek and he was driving, that was like his thing. He was very quiet unless he was driving could without knowing episode titles could recount like entire seasons of shows and like James Bond was one of those things he was more of a a born identity person 
Those were the only novels I ever <laughs> saw him read, and he would like reread them with a passion. But Bond was just one of those things. I just there's not a single moment where I remember when I first saw any of them besides the newer Craig stuff. I grew up with all of them on at some point. We were not like an obsessive Sean Connery household, but like I'm also a giant Highlander fan. There could be only one. Always. Um, <laughs> ask me about Mythos all the time, oh every day of my life. It's weird how much Highlander is just coming up in almost every conversation I'm having. You're really, having I good conversations. Like I mean, that is true. Definitely. The soundtrack is like the most recent thing that I was talking about. But yeah, I uh, also grew up definitely with Highlander. So I am with you. Yeah. At least once a year, I do a rewatch of the Highlander TV show. That is really just me watching every single Mythos episode and skipping every episode that he's not in. With the exception of like one or two Amanda episodes. (laughs) But yeah, Sean Connery household. I love the Pierce Brosnan ones. They are so fun and so silly. (laughs) Denise Richards. Oh, my God. God. Is Christmas Jones? No jokes, Bonds. I've already heard them all. (laughs) I mean, let's talk Famke Jensen as Zinnia (laughs) Onatop. Oh, my God. Possibly the most fun any individual has had playing a role in their entire lives. Serious. There's the moment where she introduces herself. And Pierce repeats it back to her and she repeats it back. And I'm like, I need to know exactly how many takes it took (laughs) to get that. Because the take they kept, they break. Like (laughs) in the take they kept, Pierce is like about to crack up. So how many times did he just fucking lose it? Uh, But like, I always have loved Bond. And then when the new movies came out, I was obsessed with them. And then my wife did not care. And then Skyfall happened. And my wife had never seen a Bond at all. In fact, it was only like a month or two ago that she she'd played Goldeneye obsessively because video game nerd with two brothers, but had never seen any of the movies. She only saw Goldeneye like a month ago. But like Skyfall came out and my wife and I fell in love with that movie. So it was really like a reigniting of something that was just kind of like, of course, I love Bond. It's just part of my DNA. Like asking if I love Bond was just weird. I love smarmy assholes who wink and you die and you know they're going to destroy your credit but you're going to say yes anyway and then they also kill and punch people and like I have a real love of like small gestures that I get really obsessed with and one of them is the James Bond fix of the sleeves Mm. after an explosion Mm -hmm. you know like that kind of thing like that vibe and so Skyfall became like me and my wife's movie like it is one of the top three movies that if one of us is in a bad mood. The other will just put on quietly. I think we saw it seven or eight times in the theaters. And that's a long movie. So we're committed. Uh, <laughs> the only movie that rivals it for a number of times in the theater with both of us going to see it, I think, is Winter Soldier. But like Bond uh, is definitely more times than that. Then we went back and we were watching them so that my wife could experience all the movies. So I've loved it for a while. In fact, so I was brought on to Bond kind of via Vita, who had been offered to pitch but like was juggling a bunch of stuff and they had been working on Xena and was like, but you know who is a James Bond fanatic? Danny is. So Vita brought me on and literally the week before there had been like this big mole skin, probably like holiday sale or something, midsummer sale. And my wife went and bought me stuff. But the reason she bought me any notebooks was because they had an anniversary James Bond notebook that had like the logos for every movie. And she had shown it to me like earlier than that. And she bought it for me. So she had just bought it. And then I get this call from Vita like, yo, you want to write James Bond? And I was like, are you shitting me? Like, yes. The universe literally handed you a notebook and said, Danny, please write James Bond. Yeah. No, no. I dead ass wrote all my notes in that notebook. 
Oh, that's so uh, cute. I can't handle it. <laughs> I, in fact, for a moment, I almost didn't do it. Like I just had loose papers because like when you're pitching like a licensed book, you pitch and there's a chance that all the work you do, no matter how many, like I think we worked for a month and a half or two months on pitching, even if it's good, the editorial at the company may not be into it or they may be into it. But because it's a license, they have to get approval from the like the Fleming estate and maybe they don't like it. So I was really paranoid about like, what if I write my notes in this book and I only get two or three pages in because like it's rejected and then like I can never use this book again. Right. I'm just like in my feelings. But I'm like, no, I'm just going to I'm going to do it because like it's James Bond. If you learn anything from James Bond, it's just you've got to go hard and like make big explosions. Right. So I was like, I'm just going to do it. And I'm writing my notes in there. And I got on the phone with Nate, the editor for that. And we started kind of spinning the story that was just about this world where what's a world that James Bond doesn't look awkward in, but knows nothing about and kind of has no desire Mm -hmm. to know about. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's art. Like think about any scene with him in an art museum at any point in time. Uh, (laughs) Think about that scene with Q in Skyfall. He sees a big fucking boat, you know, like it's not his scene, but he looks like he belongs there. Mm -hmm. And that was a really fun dynamic to play with because it's one that doesn't minimize any of his skills or his tech while still meaning he needs assistance no matter how much he doesn't want it. I love that, too, you're like allowing his flaws, which exist and are consistent throughout the movies. People are like, Bond, do what we said, not what you thought was right. Like, it's nice to see that continuity into the comic and to see like his decision-making and and his interiority, but through the eyes of someone else, right? Like Keys is so imperative to this story. Yeah, like it was super fun for me because I remember I had written, or like Vita and I, although I think the first three pages of the first issue I wrote in its entirety, like that, that little like teaser spread. By the time it was announced, I think we had already finished the first issue. But it was very funny because I don't usually bring up like these sorts of haters, but they were very much like immediately like, oh, it's going to be some SJW story and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, my first page has him sleeping with the mistress of an ambassador and jumping out a window. And that terrible decision being (laughs) what literally fuels everything in the rest of the story. Like, I was like, no, I don't want to write James Bond for him not to be James Bond. But that happens on the other side, too. Like, I love the fact that he's an asshole. I love the fact that he makes decisions that work that should not work. And you're angry. And like, he says that smarmy, terrible thing to a lady that gets her in bed that you're like, that shouldn't work. I hate you because it shouldn't work. And that's terrible and possibly kind of misogynistic and awful. But like, that's who he is. And that's the character that I go to see in the theaters. You know, like... And I was excited to write that. I was excited to write a character that I'm like, cool, going in, opening this book, you know, he's an asshole. So uh, I don't know what else. He- it's it's that moment of uh, the bird in the bag in um, meme, the uh, I don't know what I expected. <laughs> Where I was like, oh, little do you guys know, like, I love Queen of Bad Dreams. But like any of my longer form stuff or like the stuff I'm pitching or like the novels I'm working on, like all my heroes are assholes. I love doing that. I love doing the character that you're like, I hate you, but I love you. But I really fucking hate you. Right. Well, you can't deny that Bond is really fucking good at his job, right? Yeah. You're like, God damn it, Bond. You're so good at things. And it's the same way I like 
the reason I love John Constantine is I, I feel that same way where I'm like, God damn it, John. Like, why are you such a dick? But you're so good at everything. Fuck. Listen, we can't start talking about John because um, I, that's a whole nother podcast. Um, we'll have you back. We'll have you back to do that. My first comics I ever read were the Books of Magic books back when oh, I was like 10 oh. and too young to read them. John, the Hellblazer, <laughs> yeah. like the original 300 issue series remains like my favorite comic of all time. And I regularly like not even once a year reread. Like I just go back. I at least read Andy Diggle's run like every couple of months because I, I adore it <laughs> so much. But like I will just start from the beginning. And when I'm having those times where I'm like, I can't read anything. That's the thing I open to be able to read. It's like that or Neuromancer mostly. We are very simpatico. <laughs> that is my jam. I live for John Constantine. God, just someone who's like really important to the world and saves things a lot, but does it in a way where you're like, I just want to punch you in your damn mouth. But also yep. like kiss you in your damn mouth for me, at least as a bi person. I'm like, I want to kiss yeah. you. I want to punch you. I want to punch you. I want to kiss you. It's but like, I, I want to shake you. I, I don't want to have your life, but I want to wake up and be you. But I don't want to be you. Yeah, <laughs> I think we all almost have or I mean, I know I certainly have a friend who's like that definitely in my life where I'm just like, I can take you in small doses. Yes. You seem to just kind of waltz through life in this way that I'm not comfortable with personally, because like, you know, you have to navigate things differently. But and you're like, I don't know how you got out of that. I don't understand. It makes no sense. You just decided not to not to deal with it. And you didn't have to. It's really baffling. Um, <laughs> it's actually super fun. My my uh, one of our quarantine activities is my wife has been trying to get me to read the uh, Bujold novels for like years now. Uh, and <laughs> yeah. I'm some of this was just being bitter because she's the worst at this where you recommend something to her and she's like, absolutely not. Just because she doesn't like being told that she would like something. So like this was my thing that I was like, <laughs> I'm not going to do. So finally, you know, we're stuck pandemic quarantine and everyone in my neighborhood has no sense and is just out there with their mask lowered smoking a cigarette on the corner with their three friends same legitimately something i saw and i wanted to scream so she started with one of the fantasy books curse of bujold and just started reading it to me out loud and then we've moved to the miles Verkosigan books and if you like john constantine and if you like his ability to open his mouth and say the thing that is simultaneously the rightest and wrongest thing <laughs> Like, it is wonderful. Like, those books literally one of the smartest villains in the whole thing. Well, not in general, he's not smart. But one of the smartest comments said is this dude finds Miles and literally goes, if he starts to talk, cut off his tongue because that is incredibly dangerous. Don't let him speak to you. Love it. Because the second he opens his mouth, he will. And like, he is his own worst enemy because he can talk everyone into everything, including himself. <laughs> And like he knows that he can do it and he knows that he's smart and it's a disaster. And in some way, James Bond is like that, too. He knows going into a room, he is better than everyone in the room. And that sometimes makes someone who's not better than him a legitimate enemy. Right. And that's fun. He goes into a room and he completely underestimates Brandy, who is his cohort in all of this, but ends up having to work with her and realize, you know, not, oh, I love her because he's like, it's Bond. He's not going to do that. But being like, OK, she has her uses, I guess, you know, like <laughs> walking into rooms and sometimes like very often it's because he thinks that he's smarter than everyone that the twist of the story happens because he's underestimated a villain. Right. Mm -hmm. And that that stuff's fun and is best done with assholes. <laughs> if you do it with like someone who's too good, it reads as naivete and that's not what it is. Mm. 
it is entirely just his ego is too big to see the forest. And I love that. It's wish fulfillment because I have massive anxiety and no ego to speak of. So I only like writing <laughs> characters whose egos are so big that it moves the earth and stars. I love it. Well, it's clear you just fucking love Bond, you know? Like, I was going to make some jokes about Bond sucking, and I'm not, because obviously... I mean, you, you can. Audience... I, I clown things because I love them. Uh... <laughs> well, I was, I was going to say, who knew that by making Bond a bit of a more secondary character in his story, you suddenly love him so much more. He's irresistible in these issues that you and Vita have done. He's just so funny and he's he's good at things and you like him, but it's nice to see him through someone else's eyes instead of just through his own, you know? And and when you see him through his own eyes, you're like, God, this ass, just fucking pull it together. But sort of seeing him from, you know, Brandy's point of view is, is like, okay, she sees his limitations and she sees like what a badass he is too. And that was really endearing, I thought. Yeah, I really enjoy that. One, I have an old school love of observer narrators. It's kind of a weakness of mine. If anyone ever gets me started on Final Fantasy XII, I can do that for eons. I love the characters <laughs> who watch these bigger than life people do things and how it affects them. And Bond is that character, right? He is, I was reading a, a book about how to write character arcs and there's three types essentially that have nothing to do with what their plot is. There's like, the positive one where they go from their lowest point and become like epic and amazing by the end. There's the negative one where they're epic and amazing and they're brought all the way down, right? And then there's this neutral one, right? There's this thing where what the character is is the center of the labyrinth. They are the center of the storm, not a calm. It's just they are who they are no matter what, but that makes everyone's story arc happen. And James Mm. Bond is very much that sort of character, right? Uh, It's not that he doesn't evolve. Obviously, the writing that you have for the more recent movies versus the older ones or even with Fleming's original stories to, you know, like the last ones as the writer evolves, the character evolves in certain ways. But really, it's this thing where that's who Bond is. Right. And I think then the best way to deal with him is give him characters that can be wrapped up in his energy, in his momentum. But build ones that can't be crushed by it right mm, mm. that's why i love pax run with odd job so much right that character is his own bond right so he can't be crushed under the weight of bond's greatness mm. and it makes bond have to interact with the world differently you know like while the issues aren't out yet we've announced who the big bad is for like the last two issues of bond and you have a character like big right who's one of those characters that is one of the few characters big enough to kind of like shake James being the center of things. And so like it's it's really fun doing that, doing, well, what does this force of nature look like to people and look like to people that aren't steamrolled by him? But, you know, that's still a balance, though, because some people think not steamrolled means that they have to be better than the character at everything, have to like shove the character in submission. And I'm like, that's not necessarily true. Sometimes it is. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that's fun. And I think that you can do that in bits. But I also think that that then sometimes rails against why you'd be reading a Bond book to begin with. You know, you mm. read a Bond book for how is Bond going to survive and get out. So eventually you do have to get to that point. And we felt like Brandy was a really good foil to that for that reason. She has her own skill set. She's a grown woman. So she is very confident in who she is and how she exists in the world. 
But at the same time, she's like, oh, but he's like secret agent, secret agent. Shit. You know, like this is not even what I was doing back when I was doing bad shit, which is really fun. Agreed. So what can you tell us about Ironheart 2020? I really enjoyed writing it. I still can't believe it that this was something that I got to do um, at all. And of course, getting to do it with Vita is really, really fun. I love Riri as a character. She is such a dynamic, interesting character with such a strong voice. And the stuff that connects her to her community in Chicago in her storylines is so interesting. And for me, it's really sweet and wonderful because not to get like super weird and somber on everybody, but when I first submitted Last Exorcist as a story, it was, I think, less than three. It was like a month after my my dad passed. Um, he had uh, kind of like been sick for a month and uh, passed away. And I get a lot of my nerdiness from him. So it is very wild to know that like he is the person who introduced me to that secret agent stuff. And I got to write James Bond. He would tell me stories as a kid about how when him and his, his friends would play during recess, he was always Iron Man. And then my first Marvel book is Ironheart. I'm getting to write this young black girl in an iron suit. You know, like, it's already like, oh, I'm writing for Marvel. And then on top of that, I'm like, my first thought when someone asked me about it was, I don't know if I'm smart enough to write Riri. Like, science smart is not how my brain works. <laughs> I'm not a science and math person, right? And Riri is hella smart, <laughs> right? Like, right. And like, that's not how my brain works at all. I am a much more social sciences driven person. But one, doing it with Vita, obviously, and thus the opportunity, you know, I'm like, well, I'm not going to know until I try it, which has been both my very smart and very dumb way of doing my career is saying yes to things because I'm like, I don't know if I can do it. If I can't do it, I'll say no. If I don't know, I'm probably going to say yes. Um, don't tell me that's a bad career plan because that's what I'm doing. Because <laughs> I'm like, well, I spent a lot of time saying no to things because I wasn't sure if I could do them. And then lo and behold, it turns out that if you don't do them, you don't learn how to do them. So then you will never be ready. And that really blew my mind. So then I started saying yes to things. And uh, then I learned how to do them. And that was cool. Um, so like for me, Ironheart is like a very emotional experience for like three million reasons, you know. And, you know, there's a little bit of a homecoming for me because, you know, I'm writing this with Vita. And then, you know, Matt Rosenberg is also, you know, I think he's doing force works for this event. So, you know, like getting to message my Forbidden Planet people and being like, yo, I guess we're in an event together. Like that's that's fucking dope. And having been fortunate where I have a bunch of friends who are creators who are doing stuff for Marvel and like knowing that they have advocated for me, you know, so I'm like, cool. This isn't just, you know, like my first pass at Marvel. This is I've been fortunate enough to have people say my name and be like, oh, we should bring them on board and now now I just got to do it. So no pressure have I given myself. <laughs> and then weirdly enough, it was just super some of the most fun stuff in terms of like ease of scripting that I've done. So, you know, like it is part of this 2020 event in which Arno is in charge and Tony is uh dead and all of this stuff is happening and Riri's story is a little different in that we decided never to have her go to New York, but she is dealing with Stark Unlimited and some shenanigans that are connected to the major event. We decided we only have two issues to tell a story. And we also are in a little bizarre of a situation because Riri chronologically is also affected by the outlawed event. 
right? So she kind of has like this double situation where this is part of the 2020 event, but she's, she's doing her thing. And so we decided that the best way to approach this, considering limited space, is we wanted to shock and surprise, tell a story about her small community of uh, brown folk. And so it becomes a story that is very literally about her, Natalie, her best friend and AI and Xavier, Mm. where Natalie is affected by an incident that occurs uh, when they are out. But on top of that, she and Riri are kind of grappling with Riri's decisions in relationship to outlaw and what that means in terms of the existence of Ironheart. And so like we decided, cool, like this is what we want to play with. We love Natalie and I love the chance to kind of delve into more of her, right? Because we know she technically exists off of Riri trying to make the perfect AI for herself. But like there's a lot of space there, right, Uh, in terms of how that came to be. And while we don't do like origin stuff necessarily, we do a little bit about who Natalie and Riri are in relation to each other that I think was really exciting to get to play with. They let us do a lot, (laughs) uh, both in terms of just being wild and emotional, I think. Mm. It was really nice to really get to play with their relationship in a way that we constantly kept being like, we're just going to do this. And then if they tell us no, we'll pull back or we'll, you know, regroup. But like they really didn't. (laughs) Uh, They let us have fun. Also, issue two has me and Vita's best joke of all time. Okay, well, all right. (laughs) Literally just letting you guys know, like we wrote the joke and like it wasn't even in the original script. We like did it in lettering. V made a crack and I was like, we need to put that in the script. It's brilliant. (laughs) <laughs> and then we figured out how to make the joke work and then we were like there's no way that editorial lets us do this like it's just and then they were like oh we love this <laughs> in fact the only note we got back from it was like a literal copy editing like grammatically does this work or should we do this and it was just like oh all right cool they're letting us do it and it is sincerely and considering quarter killer exists probably my favorite joke that vita and i have put in a comic i can't wait so I hope you guys enjoy. And also, holy crap, the art and colors on this book are like wild. It was so funny. We were like, do we have an idea of artist or style? And then our editor, Alana, was like, oh, it's uh, Massimo. We were like, what? oh, OK, cool. He's just brilliant. That's fine. Um, <laughs> and then he's like starts bringing pages back. And he literally was like, hey, so I decided to do some like little experimental stuff with this, you know, a little bit of inspiration from like Spider-Verse and stuff because I watched it. And we look at the pages and we're like, this is for us. Like it's like a present or something like it's not like a professionally published book that is being put out. But like it's so awesome to look at. We're like, this is for us. You did the thing for us. And then like <laughs> we got the colors And we were like, oh, this is beautiful. So, yeah. That's going to be so amazing. I'm excited. I loved the Ironheart series that just happened. And so it's just nice. Mm -hmm. Nice that they're just keeping such a great quality, I guess, behind the book. You know, there's so many great writers on it. Is there anything that's coming up that listeners should know about? Oh, boy. Everything in my life, because it's quarantine time, is like, maybe Uh, when's that happening well before this uh so before this comes out we will get issue five of james bond i in fact got my comps two days ago that was super exciting Mm. that for sure trying to think if i have anything else in between there aside from my birthday happy birthday happy birthday 
yay! I will presumably be spending it doing what I do every day, which is yelling about Yakuza and playing Gundams. Building Gundams, playing Gundams. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, those are like the set things, I think. Oh, uh, July, that means I think uh, digitally the first issue of Ironheart will have come out. Oh yeah, yay. cool. So we'll be able to uh, chat about that. It's always kind of up in the air whether or not I'll have like announcements or, you know, it's comics. I could be sitting <laughs> on something like, oh, I think that nothing's going to happen until the end of the year. And then I get an email tomorrow and they're like, oh, by the way, do you want to pick up steam on this and like start doing things? And I'm like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so hopefully by then I will have more stuff. But oh, my podcast with Danny Roth and Vita Ayala in which we rewatch all of Voyager episode by episode. What? We did I had no idea. <laughs> we actually just just started it. Uh, it's real fun. Every episode by the end of the podcast, we ask how gay that episode was. <laughs> I don't recommend it if you really truly like Tom Paris. Tom <laughs> fucking Paris. God damn it, Tom. Exactly. I spent a lot of time talking about how Chicote and Tom Paris should have been not only one character, but how to fix that entire plot line. So if you're ever interested in those, uh, I do that a lot. Good. That's what Voyager needed. <laughs> oh, uh, my God. Poor Harry Kim. Oh, Harry. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm so sorry, Harry. Uh, oh, Harry. <laughs> we spent a lot of time talking about how Harry and Bellana should have been BFFs the entire series. And that was definitely a drop plot line. Absolutely. It is called uh, The Delta Padrant. Um, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yes. Pun names. <laughs> So, yeah, so that is a thing. We keep telling ourselves we're going to come up with a better one, but we're not. You can't get better than <laughs> That's that. Perfect. That's perfect. That's honestly probably the best thing I've ever heard. It gets everything across. We love you it. You know exactly what we are. <laughs> but, yeah, so that that's what I've got on my list. That's amazing. Danny, this has been incredible. Thank you so much for doing so much philosophizing with us and talking about, like, what makes stories work? What's our responsibility as editors? And, you know, all that jazz. And then talking about all your incredible works, Queen of Bad Dreams, James Bond, Quarter Killer. I mean, they're all incredible. And you're just clearly so enthusiastic and it's really infectious. This has been a really, really wonderful conversation for me. Same. I super, super enjoyed it. You guys are awesome. And Thank hopefully you. I'll get to talk to you guys again. I mean, I will. We'll be talking about gay things on the interwebs. <laughs> <laughs> That's our other I'm podcast. I'm looking at like a crossover with the Padrant. Like, I mean, honestly. Like... We would love that. Padrant is always fun. <laughs> a podcast that is all about making comic books more accessible to LGBTQ folks and women. So if you have a question about anything related to comics, comic adaptations, pop culture in general, conventions, cosplay, you name it, that's what we're here for. You can send us your questions at bitchesoncomics at gmail.com. Unfortunately, Gmail does not like the word bitch. They're pretty judgy about it. So <laughs> we can't have it spelled out. It is B dot T-C-H-E-S-O-N-C-O-M-I-C-S at gmail.com. And do you remember there's no I'm bitch? If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by rating and reviewing us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Sarah Century, and you can find me at www.sarahcentury.com and Twitter and Instagram. Still Sarah Century on those. 
I'm S.E. Fleenor, and you can learn more about me at sefleenor.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at at S.E. underscore Fleenor. Bitches on Comics is recorded by Kate Warner, who plays in the band Churchfire. You can find them at churchfiremusic.com. Our music is recorded by Katie Taylor, who plays as Earth Control Pill. You can find her music at earthcontrolpill.bandcamp.com. Bitches on Comics is recorded in Denver, Colorado. We want to recognize the indigenous peoples who have inhabited and do inhabit this land. The Arapaho Nation, the Ute Nation, the Cheyenne Nation, and others who have been erased from our history and collective memories through colonization. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.